Hello and welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. I've known Nicola Green for some time and I was delighted when she agreed to appear on the podcast. Nicola's Virgin Media O2's Chief Comms and Corporate Affairs Officer and she's an active campaigner for women in PR. I know Nicola to be a really warm, straight up and engaging person and this really comes across in the podcast. And our chat covered all sorts of topics, things like the challenges of managing engagement during a merger. Her tips for influencing the CEO are really interesting and helpful. Why she has a passion for raising awareness around invisible illness. She actually suffers from type 1 diabetes. And she also talks about why humour in social media can help during a comms crisis. It was a really interesting and varied conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. Nicola, welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage, and thanks for joining me today. Uh, now, this podcast is all about getting insights from brilliant communicators, exploring how to improve comms and engagement at work. Now, you've built a very successful career running comms for larger organisations and, and advising CEOs with their comms approach. Um, but how would you describe your own communication style? Do you practice what you preach, would you say? A very good question. Um, I think I have a very personable style. Um, I also like to have fun. And I think that comes across in my communication style of how I communicate and how I engage others around me. Um, whether I always want our chief execs to have fun is a, is a different thing, but I think it has to be natural to them. And what I found over the years in the different CEOs that I've kind of looked after, if each of them have got their own style. It's really important that you don't kind of push that down, that that really needs to come to the front so that they are themselves when they're communicating with others. Um, so that's the one thing. I think everybody has their own personal style. And it's important that you bring that out in your communication style. And has your style evolved, would you say, as you've become more experienced and moved through the ranks in corporate comms? Yeah, I think in some ways I may have become a much more direct. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I think it's a good thing because I am time poor. Um, I need to communicate quite quickly. I've got lots of things going on. So I do have a bit of a direct approach, which I don't think I had when I first started out. Um, but I think it's good. If you can be succinct in the way that you communicate, then that's got to be a good thing. So that is one thing that I do think has changed over the years. Mm. And do you think your team uh, have become comfortable with that slightly direct approach? Are they used to that now, would you say? Um, I think some of them are and some of them aren't. Um, and I think, look, as you get harder working in corporate environments, I think you understand that actually being direct isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's just getting to the point very, very quickly. So I would say perhaps some of the younger ones may find that a little bit more abrupt. Um, but I do change my styles depending on who I talk to. I'm not kind of direct all the time, but when I need to be, I think it's, it is important to be. Great. Thank you. Um now, you're, a, you're now a member of the C-suite and uh, a recent government study found that only 13.5% of exec director roles were held by women. Now, as an active campaigner for women in PR, uh, what advice would you give women aspiring to forge a successful career in communications? I think, I mean, communications is 24-7. I always kind of joke with my friends, it's the worst career to have if you're a working mum um, because you never know when you're just about to serve Sunday lunch or that the national newspaper is going to call you and ask for a comment about something. Um, so my my one big thing that 
I've had to do um, is to make sure that I organize my home life just as much as I organize my work life. Um, and I've outsourced various elements of it in order for me to focus and do what I need to do. And I think it is trying to make time for my children when I need to, um, but also making sure that I've got the brain space um, to be able to deal with the big job, which I currently have at the moment. So organisation is absolutely key um, and it can become overwhelming. I mean, there's always I have that daily fear where I'm never sure whether I'm doing a good job on either of them. But I think if you can get that organisation in, if you can be clear about where you've outsourced it, I mean, my husband and I sit down and do two weeks out of when I'm going to be in and when I'm going to be out, make sure we've got cover for um, the children to make, so I can do what I need to do. But organisation has to be key. And I think if you're if you're looking to kind of have a really big job, getting that in order will allow you to flourish in your job, which I think is important. Yeah, sure. And, and I guess it's organisation and prioritisation as well, yeah. isn't it? I think so, definitely. Um, and sometimes kids have to come first. And and I try to be at my children's events, the big things. Um, sometimes I have to negotiate if my son gets an award, whether we can do it perhaps the day in the assembly the day after. So I am a bit of a negotiator with the school in order to do that. But um, it works. Um, well, I hope it works. Maybe in 10 years time, they'll tell me whether it works or not. But hopefully it does. And do you think uh, workplace culture has become more accepting of people trying to balance, you know, that busy work life with that successful home life? Yeah, I think it has. And I think, you know, the flexible working and working from home more does give you more freedom to be at home. Um, I mean, my commute in my new role is much, much easier than my commute before. For the first time ever, I can, if I want to, walk my son to school, drop him off and then continue walking into the office. I may get in half an hour later, but for me, that's a massive thing um, to be engaged and into that school life. And I think that is accepting. I think if people need to leave at four o'clock to pick up their children and then go home and, and open their laptop, there's different ways of working now that wasn't kind of standard before. But I think today it absolutely is. And I'm a big fan of kind of leaving early, seeing my kids when as soon as they get home from school and then logging on at kind of seven o'clock once they've gone to bed um, and doing some more work. But that works for me. It may not work for everybody, mm. um, but it, that is something that I definitely do and encourage all of my team to do as well. If there are big events, they should be at them for their children. That's great. I mean, I, I was going to say, I guess there's a shadow of the leader example there, isn't it? If if the boss is doing it, then it's okay for us to do it. Yeah. And it shouldn't just be the women either. Mm. I mean, the men, the men should feel entitled to do that as well. And I'm a big fan of doing that. It shouldn't just be uh, that the women have this special thing to look after the children. If the if the men want to go and also do that, that's really important as well. So I do make time to make sure that all of my team feel that they do have the right to do that. As long as the work gets done, I don't care when they do it, yeah. is my motto. Um, I recently read an article that you wrote on invisible illness in society and in the workplace. Could you share a little bit about why that's important to you? I think... I mean, for a long time, I didn't tell anybody about my invisible illness. I'm diabetic, type 1 diabetic. Um, I think I had quite an interesting experience very early in my career when I first got diagnosed. I got diagnosed quite late and I was on a grad trainee scheme um, for a PR agency. And it was really interesting when I told them, one person's comment has stuck with me for a very long time. They said, oh, you're going to need lots of time off. You're never going to get promoted now. And that really stuck with me. And so I hid it for a long, long time because I didn't want it to hold me back. 
And then I think there's been more acceptance in uh, in the communities and in working life that actually people do have invisible illnesses. And I actually thought I had a role to play in actually bringing that to the fore and realizing that people there could be people like me who are hiding things and and that's not right and they should feel comfortable in the working environment to deal with that um and to be open about it and i've you know i've had a couple of really difficult situations where you know if my blood sugar goes low and i can't think very well and my alarm i'm very lucky in the fact that i have technology that alerts me if um i'm going low and that starts beeping. I've had to excuse myself out of meetings. And also my brain doesn't think properly. So you can be talking to me, but I'm all I'm concentrating on is how do I get some sugar? And that can be quite hard. If you're in a board meeting, just about to do a big presentation, I make sure that my sugars are where they need to be at least an hour before I go in so that I you do have my full attention and have my full brain as I describe it. But to me, I, I'm not the only one. Uh, you know, diabetes is one thing. There are other things that people also potentially hide that I just think they should feel the right to be able to be open about and to continue their daily lives with people having a little bit more acceptance um, to people being different and it not basically meaning that you're never going to get promoted ever again, which was the thing that has driven me and kept me going for a long period of time. Um, but it's a good reminder. And I think we need to be as open as we can be in order to be accepting to lots of different people within the working environment, just like we are in the community environment as well. Yeah, it's such an important topic, isn't it? Um, fortunately, it seems that working cultures are becoming more aware of the needs to consider that and to see those people as actually being an asset to the business rather than a liability. And I think it is. I mean, people have amazing strengths. You know, if you're a dyslexic, you've got amazing other strengths is what I tend to find. And it's about tapping into them. Everybody has something that they can bring and they should be able to bring their whole selves to work. And that to me is really important. That's great. Thank you. And just in terms of um, the diversity and inclusion agenda more generally, more broadly, how would you say that has evolved during your time, um, you know, working in corporate life? Oh, massively. I mean, I think it really has had a bit of a step change and I think that's good. I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. I think as communicators, we play a, an interesting role because we've got to listen to our customers, listen to our shareholders and our stakeholders and some things in the DNI space, people have different opinions, and we have to make the judgment call about what is right and what is wrong, and what we should be communicating and what we shouldn't. And I do think it is a very fine line. We've seen the likes of Disney in the states kind of get into a little bit of a mess on this point, and it is the one thing that really does keep me awake at night is making sure I make the right decision in this space. Um, and I think you know it is very important to continue to do our job to push to recognise what our customers are actually saying and what they want from organisations. And I think there's even more pressure on organisations today to stand up and be counted. And that's what future employees are looking for. They're looking for organisations that basically will make them feel welcome if they go and work there. So the DE&I space has massively changed during my career. Um, but I think for the, for the right things and for the good. Um, and the more we can do in that space, the better. Great. Thank you. Now, moving on now to uh, managing upwards and managing teams. Uh, you're now a member of the C-suite. Uh, congratulations. Um, but your role as comms director has long meant that you have had the ear of the CEO and the exec. What are your secrets for successfully managing and engaging upwards to thrive in corporate life? Um, I think it's about, I spend a lot of time listening and a lot of time 
going around the business and making sure I understand the issues that are impacting us at a moment in time. Because you have to be able to manage effectively. And the way I think you can do that is by ensuring you understand the subject that you're discussing really well. And that includes listening to others so that you can make an informed judgment. I think what I tend to do a lot of is bring the outside in to my managing upwards. So I can say, this is what journalists are saying. This is what our social media presence is saying. And that makes me a more rounded kind of professional when I go in and talk to the CEO about how they should be managing various different situations. So I think managing upwards, to me, is about relationships and it's about managing those relationships. And I think the way you get a good relationship with someone is if you are listening to what they have to say, considering their viewpoint, and you don't have to always agree, but you need to have considered their point of view. And that's the way I find I manage more effectively, both with my CEO, but also with the C-suite as well. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want to put you on the spot with this question, but I guess sometimes we have uh, managers that we can uh, empathise with and get on very well with. Sometimes we have managers that maybe we rub against the wrong way. Um, how do you manage that if you're maybe trying to work with a, a slightly more abrasive personality? I think it's about timing is important and when you put your point of view across and when you don't. And also about how you influence people around that person uh, to get your point of view across. And I've done that a lot. And some may say, you know, that's quite sneaky in how you do it. But I think it's, it's about, I use my emotional intelligence a lot and I'm quite blessed. I don't know whether other communicators have such a high emotional intelligence, but that is what actually gives me my strength and my power to influence in a very successful way. Um, But I think, you know, timing crucial, like if that person is in a bad mood, don't go in and try and get a long, you know, conversation about something that you want to achieve. It's not the right time. Um, but secondly, influence around. And I found that to be really, really successful. The more people I can galvanize and get my point of view across to, I think then they can actually play an important role on my behalf as, as well as uh, influencing that person. Yeah. And what's the single most important piece of comms advice that you've ever had to give a CEO? Well, that's a very good one. My single piece of advice is don't speak for the sake of it. Speak when you've got something important to say and also listen and make sure you listen to others. And the kind of comes back to me, a CEO on a panel who wants to take over, um, who wants to get their point of view across, doesn't come across well. So I think it is don't always speak, stamps back, listen to others, listen to what they've got to say before you actually go in. And I think that's so important on a panel, but it's also very important when talking to journalists um, to listen to the question that you're being asked before you respond and take time, take time to respond. You don't need to go out so quickly. Um, And I think that's something that not all CEOs kind of want to do because uh, they want to get their point of view across and they're very assured in that this is the correct way of thinking. But I think considering others is also really important as well. Yeah. And um, obviously CEOs generally have a a sense of gravitas and authority that, that may come naturally. It may come through working at it. Do you do you tend to find that CEOs are pretty good at just taking something and running with it, or do you think they're much better to be practicing, 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 rehearsing? We've got to be careful that they don't become unauthentic. And I think, you know, the the more authentic a, a person can be, the better that they will communicate and get across the message that they want to get across. I think you can be too polished, um, and that isn't good. As a comms director, you need to know when to stop. 
And also, it's okay if they don't say it verbatim of every word that you've written down. However much you may love what you've written and think it's the best thing ever, it's got to be authentic to them. And I think that to me, you can see, you can see those CEOs that literally aren't authentic and have just read what the comms person has said and just almost like a mouthpiece to those that put their own spin on it, create their own personality through what they need to say. And I am much more of the make your own stamp of it. I can give you guidance, which is why I'm very big on the three messages. Stick to three messages. There's three things I want you to get across in this. It's these. Get those across in any which way you like. I don't mind, but they're the three messages I want you to land. And I found actually that to be the best way um, to make sure that those CEOs are authentic and get their message across correctly. And do you think they should label those messages up front and highlight them or do it more naturally and, and sort of assimilate them into the presentation? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm more of a natural. I think, you know, as long as you finish your piece by making sure you've landed them, I don't think you need to do it. It's all, all sometimes I think it's quite good to summarise at the end and say, you know, let me just summarise the kind of points that I was trying to make. One, two, three, fine. Um, but the more natural, the better for me. I'm quite a natural communicator in how I talk with people. I don't need to be point one. This is what I want yeah. you to know. Point yeah. two. Yeah. Um, so, but everybody's different. But yeah. that to me is a more natural style is a better style in my mind. And I guess that comes from confidence as well, though, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. And and don't get me wrong. That sometimes needs practice, right? Um, you sometimes need practice to make sure you've thought about the question, thought about how you want it to come across. Um, so it's not as easy as just going, right, these are the three questions, off you go. I think you do need time to kind of prep um, and making sure you do have time with the CEO to prep is really, really important, but you don't want them to be too polished. So there's a there's a fine line, I would say. Got it. Um, what about engaging your own team? We've talked about managing upwards. How about kind of managing teams how would you describe your management style and how do you ensure everyone in the team, because um, I'm guessing your, your team has grown over the years, how do you ensure they're all motivated, informed and inspired? So I have a bit of a work hard, play hard, you know, that's what I live by. And I try to instill that in the team as well. And I think that goes back into flexible working, like do your work as best you can. I don't care how you do it. And that creates a little bit more freedom for people within the team. But I'm also very big on, yes, my team is much bigger, but I want to be accessible. I learned so much from not just my DRs, but also people much further down the organization that have come in that, you know, are talking to their friends and family about Virgin Media O2 business, how they kind of, what we should be doing. And I think there's a lot to learn from lots of different ages, lots of different backgrounds. So I try and influence and encourage people as much as possible to be open, open with me, but open with the team to speak up. And I think that's actually quite motivating because then you get the power um, that they feel that they've got a voice. And I think having that voice is really, really important to a big corporate affairs team. Um, having an opinion is not a bad thing as well. How do you encourage that? And I think that motivates people because they feel they're, you know, needed. They feel that they've got a role to play, um, not just in what they do for the team, but in the wider commitment for the team as well. Thank you. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit now about the merger between Virgin Media and O2. Uh, now, I, I happen to have worked at both companies, as you know. I worked with you at O2, and then I went on to work uh, at Virgin Media. And I know that both had very powerful brands. Obviously, you've got the blue brand with O2 and the red brand with Virgin Media. As someone who's led comms on the blue side for O2 for many years, um, how did you personally find the coming together of these two brands, these two organisations? Firstly, it was really, really exciting. Um, I've been at O2 for a long period of time. 
And it's really interesting because I almost had to mourn the death of O2 in order for me to start within the new organisation of Virgin Media O2. And the reason I did that was on purpose because what I didn't want to do was bring in, oh, this is the way we do it at O2, um, into the new organisation. And I think that's, we saw that so much. You know, everybody's going, well, that's not the way we do things around here. And we had to, I kind of had a very long chat with my team about it's great. Your experience that you had at either organization was fantastic. But actually, this is a brand new organization and we need to set it up in that way as well. And the cultures were really similar, but also quite different. And I think you it's almost like you need to be respectful of where you've come from. But together, we need to build the new future. Um, and that was really important. It was hard. It was hard for me, and I'm sure it's hard for the Virgin Media people as well, to kind of almost say goodbye to those brands. But mentally, it was the way I had to deal with it in order for us to start anew. And I said to everybody when we first came together, this is like a new job, and that's how you should be treating it, rather than it's the, I'm just going to do things exactly the same way. And I think we could be even better by bringing the strengths of the two organisations together. But I think having that, thinking about it in that way, is really good and really healthy. Um, and also make sure that you bring other people with you um, because there's nothing more annoying than that's the way I did it and that's therefore the way I'm always going to do it. Um, it's never healthy for a new new organisation to start with. Now, mergers can be stressful times for employees, and I'm sure you picked up some of that from the team. The big question on many people's minds, usually during a merger or major change is, you know, what does this mean to me? Will I have a job in six months' time? What steps did you take to keep employees focused and engaged before, during and after the merger? Um I mean, everybody went through the same process, right? Everybody, including myself, went through an interview process and it was emotional. And, you know, at times it could be distracting on what you've got to deliver. I still stick with the belief that do the best work you possibly can and your work will shine through. So therefore, keep focused on what we've got to deliver because that's what actually will help you. Whether you get a new job in the new organization or you go somewhere else, if you can demonstrate some of the great work that you've done through a difficult period, that to me shows the resilience of you and your character, but also in the way that you deliver work, that you can deliver outstanding work in difficult circumstances. And that's what I, you know, that's how we had, again, open conversations about be the best you can be, because nobody will ever be able to take that away from you. Um, And I think that helped. And I think it helped through difficult times. And it's never easy. And I think you have to understand that people are and were on different points of that change curve. I was probably a little bit further ahead because I went through my activity. I mean, I think a year before the deal closed, we were interviewing as exec members for who was going to be on the new exec team. And and it was a grueling process. You know, there was a lot of interviews, there was psychometric testing and, and, you know, it was, it was a difficult period when you also have to be strong for the team that you are also running. Um, But it was a test of character. And you know what? I've learned an awful amount about people's resilience, how people cope with change. Um, And actually, in a weird way, I actually now find change exciting. But if you'd asked me 10 years ago whether I found change exciting, I'd be, no, no, it's dreadful. Why can't everything just stay the, the nice way we've got it set up? But actually, it's a good thing. And I think only through going through change a number of times, Um, has made me kind of more resilient and actually enjoy it more than um, perhaps I would have done 10 years ago. But I think you have to understand that others 
are not on that same change journey as you may be. Um, and it, like I say, it kind of helped me being further ahead than the rest of my team because I could help them through it when they were going through it as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, interesting times for sure. And I guess when you're going through a change journey, for some people, they come out the other side and there's a positive result. Yeah. And some for some people, maybe they'll be leaving the business. How do you ensure that even the people who may be leaving the business leave as positive leavers? I mean, I think that that is all about mental mental state, isn't it? And I think I'm a big believer on never leaving an organization in a bad way. Um, because that sticks, that sticks with you forever. And you can, you can be a good lever. I I mean, I've helped, I've lost some of my people who I've worked with for over 10 years. Um, And that, you know, it was hard, but I just said to them, you, you've done some amazing work. I will help you. I will do whatever I can do in order to help you succeed. And do you know what people have gone on? All of them have got other jobs Um, or if they, some of them, are still having time out, which is good. I encourage that as well. Um, but they've all got other jobs and I think they'll go on to bigger and better things. And I think my one kind of thing that I have hopefully done is been there for them and also given them whatever support they needed when they moved on to to their new roles. So I think being clear about all the great work you've done in the time when you've been in that organization is just so, so useful. Um, and, and nobody can ever take that away from them. And I think that's what they need to be proud of. But, you know, I spent a lot of time with some of um, members of my team who did leave just really saying, we did this, we did that, we did the other. You've achieved so much, but sometimes you forget. And I'm just the same. I need sometimes a bit of a reminder of all of the great work that we have done to date. And I think the experiences that they've had in such a fast moving industry like we've been in means that they can go on and be much beneficial to any organization that they go on to work for. That's great. So I guess there are some real tests for for communicators in the corporate world. One is communicating during change. And we've talked a little bit about that. Another one, maybe the more challenging one, is communicating during a crisis, something that lots of us have had to do in the last few years. What's the most challenging comm situation that you've ever faced and how did you deal with it? Well, I mean, I suppose it has to be the day when our network did fall over um, when I was at O2 in 2012. It was a two-day network outage. And what made it very interesting for me was that I actually was on holiday at the time. I was actually in Cornwall (laughs) with um, my daughter. I didn't have my son at that point. Um, And how could I empower my team? So they felt I was with them during a crisis, but also I couldn't, I wasn't on the pitch. So it's a bit like a, a manager of a football team. Um, so the team would have been in Slough. So right? they were in Slough. I was in Cornwall. The network was down. So Wi-Fi was obviously crucial and very, very important. They wanted my help and guidance on how to manage it, but I couldn't do it. So that trust that I had to have with the team and I had to empower them to deliver, it was a really good learning for me of how to do that, that I don't need to do everything myself and that I could get my team in order to deliver. Um and it was fascinating just how we did that. And also, you know, that's some of the the great responses that we gave on social media, which kind of made us famous on that crisis, um, was down for, with me just saying to my team, 
just do what you think is the right thing to do. Put yourself into the shoes of the customer and do what you think is right. And I will back you 100%. And if we get it wrong, we get it wrong. But just do it and just do what you think is best. And that's why we had some of the most funniest tweets we've ever had um, during that crisis, which actually built an an army of fans rather than an army of enemies. And I think that was just about empowering people to do the right thing. And that that social media team that led on some of that really positive engagement with customers and stakeholders, they they were a relatively new team at the time, I seem to remember, weren't they? Yeah, they were. They were. And I think that's why they wanted guidance from me to know that they were doing it in the right way, but I wasn't there. And that made it quite an interesting situation. Um, But it was all about, you know, again, they had to empower their teams. So although they didn't know each other very well, everybody needed a role. And we had public affairs people on the social media as well. We had people who, from internal comms, answering calls to journalists. And that really kind of demonstrated teamwork. Um, And I think even though you hadn't been there for a long period of time, it showed the value of pulling together and all being in the situation and dealing with the situation as one team really, really made a difference. And that's what I encouraged everybody to do. I was like, I'm not here, but so-and-so, you know, I had lots of people calling me going, what shall I do to help? And I was like, if you're in internal comms, help the external teams. You know, they're really busy. The phone doesn't stop ringing. You know, you need to be able to help with that. You know, if your public affairs are used to dealing with government, get on social and help the social team. And I think bringing everybody together made a real difference and made it impactful. Um, I think my kind of key thing was how do we make sure that we're guiding the CEO, which was Ronan at that time, to go on and be front-footed on TV and have those kind of conversations and make sure that they were briefed and ready to go. You know, there was talk, should I come back? Should I come back from my holiday? Should I drive back right away? And actually, um, through talking to Ronan at that stage, he was like, no, 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 you you stay on your holiday, but just empower your team. And it was just a massive learning that actually I don't physically need to do everything myself in order for us to be successful. And I think at that point in my career, I was so hands-on. I felt deeply uncomfortable not being with the team, but actually the right outcome came out of it because I empowered them to do it. And I think I've, I really remind myself of that. And I also remind others coming up, um, just, you know, doing everything yourself isn't actually that helpful, but empowering a team to be able to work effectively and for them to be the best they can be is where you'll get real shift in the kind of work that you do. Yeah. Now that's so interesting. And, and, and being empowered is such an engagement, uh, incentive as well, isn't it? It's, it's so important to the team members themselves to think, actually, I'm trusted to do this. Yeah. And I think we forget that. I think as leaders, sometimes we forget it and it's so important. And I, we have to remind others that everybody needs to feel like they're loved. They need to feel like they've got a role and that they're delivering it really well. Um, and like you say, trust comes into it. But without that, people are never going to stay in an organization. That's why I've had people work with me for a long period of time, because I think they believe that they are trusted and that they do do a great job. And I hopefully I showcase them and make them feel like they can do even more as well and push them to be the best they can be. Thank you, Nicola. Uh, Now, the pandemic was a crisis that we've all had to work through. Um, What comms lessons did you learn from the pandemic that you think are still relevant in today's hybrid workplace? Um, I think it was about different communication channels. I'm a big face-to-face communicator. I love being face-to-face in front of people. And I realised that 
we couldn't be face to face, clearly. Nobody could be. But we actually had some of our best creativity during that period of time. We quickly set up a monthly, sorry, not monthly, a weekly actually, um, with Mark Evans, which was a weekly kind of update to the organization of what was going on, of what we were dealing with, how we were dealing with the pandemic, how we were coping, some tips about what they needed to do to make sure that they could stay engaged, how we'd always be there for them, some of the support mechanisms as well. And I think the channels that we created during that pandemic have actually stayed with us today. And I was actually having a good debate with um, my EC this week about whether we actually needed to bring 600 people together for it to be a successful event or also to get our messages across and to, for people to feel like they're on the journey with us. And actually, we decided not to. Yeah. And I know damn well that if that was pre-pandemic, we would have just done it. 600 people, we have to be face-to-face. And and I think we've learned, you know, actually there's different ways of engaging people and there's different ways of making sure you get your message to land with our internally with our people that doesn't have to be face-to-face. And I think that's really important and also cost-effective, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, in this in this time of um, while we're now potentially coming into recession, making sure that we are cost effective in how we communicate is really important as well. So I think we've learned an awful lot, but I think we have to remind ourselves sometimes of what we've learned and not just fall back into the way we did things pre-pandemic just because it was the way to do it. And there you go. That's my diabetics thing telling me that I'm beeping. So there you go. Let me just get some sugar, which I've left outside. Can I do that? That's very dramatic. Right, where were we? Uh, are you okay? Give me the thumbs yeah, up. Yeah, all ready. good. Which internal channels did you put in place during the pandemic, which actually you still use regularly today? So I think, I mean, we we were lucky that we had Workplace uh, within O2, which is a fantastic internal channel. What it did do is we created kind of video content and live video content um, that we still use today in Virgin Media O2. So we went from Mark Monthly Live, which was we were doing it on a weekly this would be basis. Mark Evans, the CEO of That's right. O2 at yeah, the time. sorry, yeah. Mark Evans, the CEO of O2. Um, he did a um a weekly live to our people. And now with Lutz as the CEO of Virgin Media O2, we now do that on a monthly basis. So we still are communicating regularly. And it gives us an opportunity to get face to face, but not face to face, if you know what I mean. Um, get live content out to a wide audience in a very, very effective way. And I think I'm glad that we had Workplace in in place during the pandemic because it gave us so much access to our people um, that we wouldn't have had if we hadn't, we hadn't had it in place, I think. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, final question is about inspiration. Which leader that you have worked for or with has most inspired you and why? Oh, that's really interesting. And I think the person who has most inspired me or has um, really helped me, I think, with my career has to be Denise Lewis, who's the Corporate Affairs Director of Orange when I worked for them. Um, And the reason that I think she's really inspiring is, A, she was a big believer in young talent. So she saw me when I was very junior in Orange and really believed in me and mentored me while I was there and kind of progressed my career quite a lot during my time that I was with her, but also still today. 
Um, I still see her on a regular basis. Um, we still have lots of conversations. She's there kind of guiding me uh, and inspiring me today. And I think that to me is really important, just how much time she has invested personally in me to help me be the best I can be. And I think that's why I do a lot of um, mentoring with the women in PR, because I believe that it's only fair if someone has invested in me that I also invest back into the young talent that's coming through. Um, and therefore, I think she's a big, huge inspiration. I mean, I could have said a CEO that I've worked for, which have all been inspirational in their own way. But actually, there's someone who's helped me personally and has actually given me the groundings to know what I should do to help others as well, I think has been really important. Yeah, well, she she must be very proud as to kind of how that's how your career has worked out. Yeah, no, definitely. And she is. And, you know, she'll still call me and say, actually, I need a bit of help now, Nicola. What yeah. about this? What about that? Yeah. And what about the other? Um, but she's she's great um, and she's very personable and, you know, like I say, has invested a huge amount of time in me. And that's I'm very, very grateful and thankful for that. Yeah. And hopefully as a result of, of you passing some of that on with your own mentorship, uh, we'll start to see that figure, that 13.5% of women on the exec board actually increasing slightly over I, time. Right? I hope so. I hope so. And I think we as women, we need to do everything we can to encourage that uh, and get as many people as we can. And I, I do I do worry with is comms a bit of a dying career, which I think is quite an interesting debate. You know, when I talk to kids, they don't want to go into comms. They want to go into more funky stuff and they like the social media element of it. Um, but I just want to make sure that we encourage and see what a great career this can be. Um, as well as inspiring kind of women to continue going when they have family breaks or time out, they're actually coming back in. I've seen so many great people um, who I've known for many years take time out when they've had family and then found it really, really hard to get back in. And I think we really need to help the kind of return to workers uh, as well come back in and flourish because they can do it. It's just they lose their confidence. Um, and I think we see so many of that happening. And that's a real shame because I do think it can make a big difference to that number that you quoted if they did come back um, and demonstrated that they have value to bring. And just, you know, a lot of communications is about being aware of what's going on in the outside world, which a lot of women, if even if they're taking time out with their family are, but organization skills, right? How can you organize, make sure you're planned, make sure you know what to push out when and understand and use your emotional intelligence. And I think having time out looking for kids is perfect. And you learn, you keep those skills going, even if you're looking after a young child. So actually you should come back in because those skills are really valued. And that's something that all of us should have. So I would actively encourage people don't give up just because you've had time out. It doesn't matter how long. Just get back on the bike and keep on reading. Keep on reading. <laughs> get back on the bike and keep on riding because actually you never forget. It's still there. That's a fabulous way to um, to end that. Thank you, Nicola. Now, one thing that I, uh, I ask every podcast guest to do before we wrap is to answer six quick fire questions about communications. Are you up for that? I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> So first question, describe your communication style in three words. Personable, fun, straight up. I'm straight up can be in one word, right? Very good. Absolutely. <laughs> we can have that hyphenated. Yes, exactly. Of all of the communications you receive, what percentage do you delete? Ooh, that's a tricky one. I would say 60%. 
What was the last message that you had in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? Oh, crikey, that is a difficult one. But I think it's about human, isn't it? It's anything that you can reflect on that's human, that is personable, is really, really important. And that does grab attention for sure. I also think we need to change and do different ways of just emails, right? You know, how much content you know, why aren't we doing TikToks and sending those around to our employees? Why aren't we on the kind of communications channels journey a little bit more than what I think we have been as a as a discipline? And I think we're too reliant on our old channels and we need to upgrade them for sure. Yeah, I think I read that um, over 90% of the communications that are sent are email communications, probably more than during, yeah. the, the, you know, during hybrid working. Yeah. What is the one thing a business should be doing to boost engagement? Communicate. <laughs> I would say that, wouldn't I? But I think it is really important. I think even if you've got nothing to say, regular communication is so important to employees. Otherwise, it, you can be in a, a very vacuum environment and, we, and you, you want to be a part of a family in part that we're all in this together and that we're achieving great things. So I think regular communications has to be my answer to that one. What makes a good communicator? Writing skills. One thing that really annoys me at this moment in time about how many communicators can't write, but I think it's about the combination of writing skills and also emotional intelligence that makes a good communicator. Good answer. Um, what communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? Oh, that's an interesting one. I actually think um, Steve Jobs did an awful lot in just transforming how he communicated a technical product very, very clearly and in a very enticing, engaging way. Nicola, that was amazing. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, including live updates and early access to each podcast episode, why not sign up to the newsletter at deletedeleteengage.substack.com.